Chapter Seven of the Lost Stradivarius. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Lost Stradivarius by John Meade Faulkner. Chapter Seven. John was excited at his discovery, and felt his thoughts confused in a manner that I have often experienced myself. On the unexpected receipt of news interesting me deeply, whether for pleasure or pain. Yet at the same time he was half amused at his own excitement, feeling that it was childish to be moved over an event so simple as the finding of a violin in an old cupboard. He soon collected himself and took up the instrument, using great care, as he feared lest age should have rendered the wood brittle or rotten. With some vigorous puffs of breath and a little dusting with a handkerchief, he removed the heavy outer coating of cobwebs, and began to see more clearly the delicate curves of the body and of the scroll. A few minutes more gentle handling left the instrument sufficiently clean to enable him to appreciate its chief points. Its seclusion from the outer world, which the heavy accumulation of dust proved to have been for many years, did not seem to have damaged it in the least, and the fact of a chimney flue passing through the wall at no great distance had no doubt conduced to maintain the air in the cupboard at an equable temperature. So far as he was able to judge, the wood was as sound as when it left the maker's hands, but the strings were of course broken and curled up in little tangled knots. The body was of a light red color. With a varnish of peculiar lustre and softness. The neck seemed rather longer than ordinary, and the scroll was remarkably bold and free. The violin, which my brother was in the habit of using, was a fine presenda, given to him on his fifteenth birthday by Mr. Thorsby, his guardian. It was of that maker's later and best period, and a copy of the Stradivarius model. John took this from its case and laid it side by side with his new discovery, meaning to compare them for size and form. He perceived at once that while the model of both was identical, the superiority of the older violin in every detail was so marked as to convince him that it was undoubtedly an instrument of exceptional value. The extreme beauty of its varnish impressed him vividly. And though he had never seen a genuine Stradivarius, he felt a conviction gradually gaining on him that he stood in the presence of a masterpiece of that great maker. On looking into the interior, he found that surprisingly little dust had penetrated into it, and by blowing through the sound holes, he soon cleared it sufficiently to enable him to discern a label. He put the candle close to him. And held the violin up so that a little patch of light fell through the sound hole onto the label. His heart leapt with a violent pulsation as he read the characters Antonius Stradivarius Cremonensis Faciebat, 1704. Under ordinary circumstances, it would naturally be concluded that such a label was a forgery. But the conditions were entirely altered in the case of a violin found in a forgotten cupboard, 
with proof so evident of its having remained there for a very long period. He was not at that time as familiar with the history of the fiddles of the great maker as he, and indeed I also, afterwards became. Thus he was unable to decide how far the exact year of its manufacture would determine its value as compared with other specimens of Stradivarius. But although the presenda he had been used to play on was always considered a very fine instrument, both in make and varnish, his new discovery so far excelled it in both points, as to assure him that it must be one of the Cremonese master's greatest productions. He examined the violin minutely, scrutinizing each separate feature, and finding each in turn to be of the utmost perfection, so far as his knowledge of the instrument would enable him to judge. He lit more candles that he might be able better to see it, and holding it on his knees, sat still admiring it, until the dying fire and increasing cold warned him that the night was now far advanced. At last, carrying it to his bedroom, he locked it carefully into a drawer and retired for the night. He woke next morning with that pleasurable consciousness of there being some reason for gladness, which we feel on waking in seasons of happiness, even before our reason, locating it, reminds us what the actual source of our joy may be. He was at first afraid, lest his excitement, working on the imagination, should have led him on the previous night to overestimate the fineness of the instrument, and he took it from the drawer, half expecting to be disappointed with its daylight appearance. But a glance sufficed to convince him of the unfounded nature of his suspicions. The various beauties which he had before observed were enhanced a hundredfold by the light of day, and he realized more fully than ever that the instrument was one of altogether exceptional value. And now, my dear Edward, I shall ask your forgiveness if in the history I have to relate any observation of mine should seem to reflect on the character of your late father, Sir John Maltravers. And I beg you to consider that your father was also my dear and only brother, and that it is inexpressibly painful to me to recount any actions of his which may not seem becoming to a noble gentleman, as he surely was. I only now proceed because, when very near his end, he most strictly enjoined me to narrate these circumstances to you fully when you should come of age. We must humbly remember that to God alone belongs judgment, and that it is not for poor mortals to decide what is right or wrong in certain instances for their fellows, but that each should strive most earnestly to do his own duty. Your father entirely concealed from me the discovery he had made. It was not till long afterwards that I had it narrated to me, and I only obtained a knowledge of this and many other of the facts which I am now telling you, at a date much subsequent to their actual occurrence. He explained to his servant that he had discovered and opened an old cupboard in the panelling, 
without mentioning the fact of his having found anything in it, but merely asking him to give instructions for the paint to be mended and the cupboard put into a usable state. Before he had finished a very late breakfast, Mr. Gaskell was with him, and it has been a source of lasting regret to me that my brother concealed also from his most intimate and trusted friend the discovery of the previous night. He did, indeed, tell him that he had found and opened an old cupboard in the panelling, but made no mention of there having been anything within. I cannot say what prompted him to this action, for the two young men had for long been on such intimate terms that the one shared almost as a matter of course with the other any pleasure or pain which might fall to his lot. Mr. Gaskell looked at the cupboard with some interest, saying afterwards, I know now, Johnny, why the one shelf of the bookcase which stood there was made movable when all the others were fixed. Some former occupant used the cupboard, no doubt, as a secret receptacle for his treasures, and masked it with the bookshelves in front. Who knows what he kept in there, or who he was? I should not be surprised if he were that very man who used to come here so often to hear us play the Areopagita, and whom you saw that night last June. He had the one shelf made, you see, to move as to give him access to this cavity on occasion. Then, when he left Oxford, or perhaps died, the mystery was forgotten, and with a few times of painting the cracks closed up. Mr. Gaskell shortly afterwards took his leave, as he had a lecture to attend, and my brother was left alone to the contemplation of his new-found treasure. After some consideration he determined that he would take the instrument to London, and obtain the opinion of an expert as to its authenticity and value. He was well acquainted with the late Mr. George Smart, the celebrated London dealer, from whom his guardian, Mr. Thoresby, had purchased the Presenda violin which John commonly used. Besides being a dealer in valuable instruments, Mr. Smart was a famous collector of Stradivarius fiddles, esteemed one of the first authorities in Europe in that domain of art, and author of a valuable work of reference in connection with it. It was to him, therefore, that my brother decided to submit the violin, and he wrote a letter to Mr. Smart saying that he should give himself the pleasure of waiting on him the next day on a matter of business. He then called on his tutor, and with some excuse obtained leave to journey to London the next morning. He spent the rest of the day in very carefully cleaning the violin, and noon of the next saw him with it, securely packed, in Mr. Smart's establishment in Bond Street. Mr. Smart received Sir John Maltravers with deference, demanded in what way he could serve him, and on hearing that his opinion was required on the authenticity of a violin, smiled somewhat dubiously and led the way into a back parlour. "'My dear Sir John,' he said, "'I hope you have not been led into buying any instrument by a faith in its antiquity. So many good copies of instruments by famous makers and bearing their labels are now afloat, that the chances of obtaining a genuine fiddle 
from an unrecognized source, are quite remote. Of hundreds of violins submitted to me for opinion, I find that scarce one in fifty is actually that which it represents itself to be. In fact, the only safe rule, he added as a professional commentary, is never to buy a violin, unless you obtain it from a dealer with a reputation to lose, and are prepared to pay a reasonable price for it. My brother had meanwhile unpacked the violin and laid it on the table. As he took from it the last leaf of silver paper, he saw Mr. Smart's smile of condescension fade, and assuming a look of interest and excitement, he stepped forward, took the violin in his hands, and scrutinized it minutely. He turned it over in silence for some moments, looking narrowly at each feature and even applying the test of a magnifying glass. At last he said, with an altered tone, "'Sir John, I have had in my hands nearly all the finest productions of Stradivarius, and thought myself acquainted with every instrument of note that ever left his workshop. But I confess myself mistaken, and apologize to you for the doubt which I expressed as to the instrument you had brought me. The violin is of the great master's golden period, is incontestably genuine, and finer in some respects than any Stradivarius that I have ever seen, not even excepting the famous dolphin itself. You need be under no apprehension as to its authenticity. No connoisseur could hold it in his hand for a second, and entertain a doubt on the point." My brother was greatly pleased at so favourable a verdict, and Mr. Smart continued. The varnish is of that rich red which Stradivarius used in his best period, after he had abandoned the yellow tint copied by him at first from his master, Amatai. I have never seen a varnish thicker or more lustrous, and it shows on the back that peculiar shading to imitate wear, which we term breaking up. The purfling also is of an unsurpassable excellence. Its execution is so fine that I should recommend you to use a magnifying glass for its examination. So he ran on, finding from moment to moment some new beauties to admire. My brother was at first anxious lest Mr. Smart should ask him whence so extraordinary an instrument came but he saw that the expert had already jumped to a conclusion in the matter. He knew that John had recently come of age, and evidently supposed that he had found the violin among the heirlooms of Worth Maltravers. John allowed Mr. Smart to continue in this misconception, merely saying that he had discovered the instrument in an old cupboard, where he had reason to think it had remained hidden for many years." "'Are there no records attached to so splendid an instrument?' asked Mr. Smart. "'I suppose it has been with your family a number of years. Do you not know how it came into their possession?' I believe this was the first occasion on which it had occurred to John to consider what right he had to the possession of the instrument. He had been so excited by its discovery that the question of ownership had never hitherto crossed his mind. The unwelcome suggestion that it was not his after all, 
that the college might rightfully prefer a claim to it, presented itself to him for a moment. But he set it instantly aside, quieting his conscience with the reflection that this, at least, was not the moment to make such a disclosure. He fenced with Mr. Smart's inquiry as best he could, saying that he was ignorant of the history of the instrument, but not contradicting the assumption that it had been a long time in his family's possession. "'It is indeed singular,' Mr. Smart continued, "'that so magnificent an instrument should have lain buried so long, that even those best acquainted with such matters should be in perfect ignorance of its existence. I shall have to revise the list of famous instruments in the next edition of my History of the Violin, and to write, he added, smiling, a special paragraph on the worth Maltravers Stradivarius. After much more, which I need not narrate, Mr. Smart suggested that the violin should be left with him, that he might examine it more at leisure, and that my brother should return in a week's time, when he would have the instrument opened, an operation which would be in any case advisable. The interior, he added, appears to be in a strictly original state, and this I shall be able to ascertain when opened. The label is perfect, but if I am not mistaken I can see something higher up on the back, which appears like a second label. This excites my interest, as I know of no instance of an instrument bearing two labels. To this proposal my brother readily assented, being anxious to enjoy alone the pleasure of so gratifying a discovery as that of the undoubted authenticity of the instrument. As he thought over the matter more at leisure, he grew anxious as to what might be the import of the second label in the violin, of which Mr. Smart had spoken. I blush to say that he feared lest it might bear some owner's name or other inscription proving that the instrument had not been so long in the Maltravers family, as he had allowed Mr. Smart to suppose. So, within so short a time, it was possible that Sir John Maltravers of Worth should dread being detected, if not in an absolute falsehood, at least in having by his silence assented to one. During the ensuing week, John remained in an excited and anxious condition. He did little work, and neglected his friends, having his thoughts continually occupied with the strange discovery he had made. I know also that his sense of honor troubled him, and that he was not satisfied with the course he was pursuing. The evening of his return from London, he went to Mr. Gaskell's rooms at New College, and spent an hour conversing with him on indifferent subjects. In the course of their talk, he proposed to his friend as a moral problem the question of the course of action to be taken were one to find some article of value concealed in his room. Mr. Gaskell answered unhesitatingly that he should feel bound to disclose it to the authorities. He saw that my brother was ill at ease and with a clearness of judgment which he always exhibited, guessed that he had actually made some discovery of this sort in the old cupboard in his rooms. 
he could not divine, of course, the exact nature of the object found, and thought it might probably relate to a hoard of gold, but insisted with much urgency on the obligation to at once disclose anything of this kind. My brother, however misled, I fear, by that feeling of inalienable right which the treasure-hunter experiences over the treasure, paid no more attention to the advice of his friend than to the promptings of his own conscience, and went away. From that day, my dear Edward, he began to exhibit a spirit of secretiveness and reserve, entirely alien to his own open and honourable disposition, and also saw less of Mr. Gaskell. His friend tried, indeed, to win his confidence and affection in every way in his power, but, in spite of this, the rift between them widened insensibly, and my brother lost the fellowship and counsel of a true friend at a time when he could ill afford to be without them. He returned to London the ensuing week, and met Mr. George Smart by appointment in Bond Street. If the expert had been enthusiastic on a former occasion, he was ten times more so on this. He spoke in terms almost of rapture about the violin. He had compared it with two magnificent instruments in the collection of the late Mr. James Loading, then the finest in Europe, and it was admittedly superior to either, both in the delicate markings of its wood and singularly fine varnish. Of its tone, he said, we cannot, of course, yet pronounce with certainty, but I am very sure that its voice will not belie its splendid exterior. It has been carefully opened, and is in a strangely perfect condition. Several persons, eminently qualified to judge, unite with me in considering that it has been exceedingly little played upon, and admit that never has so intact an interior been seen. The scroll is exceptionally bold and original. Although undoubtedly from the hand of the great master, this is of a pattern entirely different and distinct from any that have ever come under my observation. He then pointed out to my brother that the side-lines of the scroll were unusually deeply cut, and that the front of it projected far more than is common with such instruments. The most remarkable feature, he concluded, is that the instrument bears a double label. Besides the label which you have already seen bearing Antonius Stradivarius Cremonensis Faciebat, with the date of his most splendid period, 1704, so clearly that the ink seems scarcely dry, there is another smaller one, higher up on the back, which I will show you. He took the violin apart, and showed him a small label, with characters written in faded ink. That is the writing of Antonio Stradivarius himself, and is easily recognizable, though it is much firmer than a specimen which I once saw, written in extreme old age, and giving his name and the date, 1736. He was then ninety-two, and died in the following year. But this, as you will see, does not give his name, but merely the two words, Porphyrius Philosophus. What this may refer to I cannot say, 
it is beyond my experience. My friend, Mr. Calvert, has suggested that Stradivarius may have dedicated this violin to the pagan philosopher, or named it after him, but this seems improbable. I have, indeed, heard of two famous violins being called Peter and Paul, but the instances of such naming are very rare, and I believe it to be altogether without precedent to find a name attached thus on a label. In any case, I must leave this matter to your ingenuity to decipher. Neither the sound post nor the bass bar have ever been moved, and you see here a Stradivarius violin wearing exactly the same appearance as it once wore in the great master's workshop, and in exactly the same condition. Yet I think the belly is sufficiently strong to stand modern stringing. I should advise you to leave the instrument with me for some little while, that I may give it due care and attention, and ensure its being properly strung. My brother thanked him, and left the violin with him saying that he would instruct him later, by letter, to what address he wished it sent. End of chapter 7 Recording by Laura Koskinen